This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. And today in our 353rd episode, we have a bunch of news. Most of it is Sabrina's news, so I feel like I don't even know what's coming. But the thing I'm going to talk about is Carnotaurus skin, which I don't think we've talked about before, but it's pretty amazing. And I'm going to talk about sensitivity in Tyrannosaur snouts and how our thinking around Allosaurus might change. Ooh, quite the tease there. Mm Mm-hmm. And we have Dinosaur of the Day, Alwakeria, or possibly Alwakeria. But first, we always like to thank some of our patrons. And this week, we have three new patrons that we're going to thank. And they are Tom. Thank you very much for joining. There's also Miriam, who joined the fabulous community, and Joey. Awesome. So now we're well over 200 patrons. Thanks to them and several other patrons who we'll be thanking next week. And now it's very exciting. And we have not forgotten the live Q&A. It's coming. Yes. But real quick, I want to round out our 10 shout outs because we always do 10 in the beginning of the episode. So this week we want to thank Gordon Adon and Jackie Cephalosaurus, Graham, Stegosaurus Noah, Arya and Tristanosaurus, Saurian Brandy, Rhinosaurus, and Ellen. Yeah, thank you so much. We really appreciate all of your support, and this month, making 200, getting over 200 people has been amazing. It's been a while since we've used the phrase feeling warm and fuzzy inside, but I think it applies, <laughs> especially this month, feeling the love. So if you want to join our growing community of dinosaur enthusiasts, then check out our page at patreon.com slash inodino, and you get all kinds of rewards, including access to a really cool community of fellow dinosaur enthusiasts where you can chat about dinosaurs to your heart's content. It is a wonderful place. Jumping into the news. (laughs) Did I do it right, Garrett? Yeah, it was good. Good. (laughs) There was a paper that came out recently called Complex Neurovascular System in the Dentary of Tyrannosaurus, and it was published in Historical Biology by Sochiro Kawabi and Soki Hattori. And it's around how T-Rex may have had a sensitive tip of its snout. Just like that Despletosaurus horneri? Yeah, but the headlines were more about it being a foodie or a picky eater, whereas the Despletosaurus one was like, it was a tender lover. It's really interesting, the two different headline types. Yeah, there's a lot of reasons it would be useful to have a sensitive snout. So to kind of sum it up, I liked the way the New York Times article put it, quote, T-Rex did not eat blindly. And basically, T-Rex had these complex nerves and the tip of the jaw may have been 
sensitive, and that would have helped it tell the difference between soft tissue and other parts of the meat it was eating. So then if it was available, it could choose to eat the soft parts. Interesting. Which is why people were talking about it being a foodie. So what the authors did was they CT scanned a left mandible or jaw of a T-Rex. It was an immature specimen that was found in the Hell Creek Formation. And they also CT scanned some other ornithischians like Triceratops, Edmontosaurus, Fuquisaurus, and they looked at extant crocodilians and birds. And what they were doing was they were looking at the neurovascular canal. That's this combination of where small blood vessels and nerves and collagen fibers and cells that store fat were. And in T-Rex, the neurovascular canal in the dentary has this complex branching pattern, actually similar to extant crocodiles and what they said were tactile foraging birds, annas, which are also known as ducks. It's kind of interesting to think of T-Rex being similar to a duck. Mm -hmm. So they assumed that the upper jaw of T-Rex had a similar complexity. There were several branches that led to the alveoli, where the root of the tooth is, and the canal's probably had some role in the blood supply to help grow its teeth, but they said they would need more analysis with other dinosaurs and extant animals to know for sure. Now, these other dinosaurs, Triceratops, Edmontosaurus, Fuquisaurus, they had simpler branching patterns compared to T-Rex. Though the authors did note that they didn't analyze the predentary of ornithischians, that's more like the front of the jaw, but they also said that the predentary compared to the entire jaw was insignificant for the ornithischians. A lot of times it was a beak too. Mm -hmm. Now, going back to the T-Rex and the sensitivity, the fact that it had these similarities to crocodiles and ducks with the, the complex branching systems could mean that it had a sensitive sensor in its snout, in the tip of the jaw. Now, it might not have been as sensitive as crocodiles. T-Rex didn't have a thick neural tissue in the canal like crocodiles, but it was more sensitive compared to those ornithischians that had the simpler branching patterns. So, like Garrett mentioned, when we're talking about Displetosaurus, T-Rex is similar to Displetosaurus this way, except Displetosaurus, it was all about the sensitive lips, and we talked about that in episode 124. A quick recap of that, the texture of the facial bones of Displetosaurus horneri indicated a scaly integument with high tactile sensitivity, and maybe that helped it figure out temperatures at the nest so it could help maintain the nest temperature or pick up eggs with its mouth without hurting the eggs. Maybe they rub snouts together in courtship. I think that's how all those headlines started. <laughs> so this idea of having the sensitive snout, it's consistent with the idea that tyrannosaurids ate the soft tissues from prey while scavenging without crushing the hard parts. And that's based on studies that have looked at the feeding traces left by tyrannosaurs. Now, according to the Times article, too, this next step could be to analyze coprolites to see how picky of eaters they were. That would be fun. Tie it all together that way. Yeah, it's really interesting because there's a lot of conflicting stuff. And it seems like Tyrannosaurus ate different things depending on what was available, maybe. Because we have seen those tooth scrape marks on some bones. And they talk about how that could indicate cannibalism or something to that effect. Mm -hmm. But sometimes it's in a meaty part of an animal. And it's like, okay, it was just eating the meat. Sometimes it's scraping off flesh off like a toe or something. But other times we have looked at coprolite and found a whole bunch of bone in it. Yeah. And we've seen teeth like lodged in say like a triceratops frill or in the jaw of another tyrannosaur or something like that. So 
they certainly weren't always being sensitive and just going for meaty parts of animals. I I have no idea if you can figure this out based on fossils and technology, but maybe, just throwing an idea out there, the reason we see bones is maybe it was more actively hunting something, so it had to employ that bone-crushing force in its bite Hmm. to get its prey, versus if it just found a carcass of something, it had more time to scavenge and get the more choice bits of meat. Yeah. Yeah. I can see what you're saying. Like if it's once it's in the eating mode rather than the attacking mode, then it's going to employ a different strategy. It might be more picky and Mm -hmm. sensitive, but I could see too, we've talked before about how like animals eat bones, but they don't often do it. It's more like when there isn't any meat available. Right. So maybe if a T-Rex is hungry, it's got the backup plan of like it could choke down a bone. <laughs> or need some extra calcium or something. Yeah, exactly. Or maybe it's in a hurry because a bigger T-Rex is about to get the food it just got. <laughs> so it needs to like bite off a chunk. Yeah. Can, yeah, that was one of the theories too. When they saw that a T-Rex was chewing a bunch near like a hip joint or something, there was like a big scrape mark on the bone. They're like, well, maybe it was trying to dislodge that leg, <laughs> tear it off and run off with it basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it would definitely be useful, even if they did do a lot of chewing on bone and a lot of these more aggressive bites, to have the sensitivity to be able to at least know what you're biting. Right. And this wasn't really in the journal article, but it was in some of the other articles written Were they talking to the scientists? Yeah. Yeah. This idea that the T-Rex sensitivity could be helpful with more than just food. It could also be, say, with parental care. If it needed to pick up a young tyrannosaur in its mouth, but obviously you don't want to crush it, mm-hmm. having that sensitivity can help. Yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Especially because we think since they were predators, they might have raised their young and taught them how to hunt. Then you're going to need that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Yeah, I thought so too. <laughs> <laughs> so up next, I've got that update on Carnotaurus skin. And this was published in Cretaceous Research, or is about to be published one way or the other, by Christoph Hendricks and Phil R. Bell. And if you're not familiar, Carnotaurus has the most complete scaly integument preserved for any theropod. I did not know that. I didn't know it either. I know that it's an intimidating looking dinosaur. It is, yeah. It is, I think, one of the coolest looking dinosaurs because it has that boxy head with the pretty large horns above its eyes, which were probably way bigger even than the skeletons because they probably had keratin covered on them. Mm-hmm. And that's why I get that name Carnotaurus because it's like the bull <laughs> yeah. dinosaur. Toro, Toro. Yeah. <laughs> Although, even though it's super cool looking, it is quite a bit smaller than T-Rex. It's about eight meters or 26 feet long, which is about two thirds of T-Rex, but more relevant to the integument is its mass. The mass estimates range from about 1.3 to 2 tons for Carnotaurus, which is still a very large animal, especially mm-hmm. on land, but it's only about a quarter the size of T-Rex. <laughs> so the reason I bring that up is because when we're talking about integument and skin, a lot of times what people want to know about is whether or not it was covered in feathers. And when you're talking about that 1.3 to 2 tons range, it's sort of right on the cusp of maybe having some sort of covering at least compared to modern animals. Mm -hmm. So that basically ranges in size from a large American bison to an average rhino. So still very large, especially compared to a human. Yeah, those are some of the largest animals alive today. The American bison is the largest bovine 
animal and the rhino is like i don't know in the top five of largest animals i think it's after like hippo and elephants or something but bison are very hairy <laughs> while rhino are mostly or essentially completely hairless other than a little bit on i think their tail and in their ears so they live in very different environments which might be part of the explanation of that but it could also be the the total size so as they get bigger you tend to see less hair on animals at least today there are all those Pleistocene mammals, you know, like woolly mammoth that were bigger than anything today and were completely covered in hair. So it does depend a lot on the environment, but considering we don't think Carnotaurus was in a really cold environment, it would be interesting to know what exactly its skin looked like and whether or not it had feathers. So Carnotaurus is usually depicted as featherless. They're in the clade Ceratosauria, which diverged from other theropods in the earliest Jurassic or maybe the late Triassic, if we find something even older. But the current date is right around 200 million years ago when it split off. But despite their really small arms and that similarity with T-Rex, they are really distant relatives, as far as theropods go at least. Most feathered dinosaurs, including T-Rex and raptors, are in Silurosauria, and that split off the family tree quite a bit later. The current estimate, I think, is about 40 million years later. And Carnotaurus is not a Silurosaur. It's in Ceratosauria, which is like a more basal group of theropods. So it's not like a lot of Dromaeosaurs and things where we're like, well, the ancestors had feathers. So this one probably did, too. We can't really say that about Carnotaurus unless you're talking about how, you know, the common archosaur ancestor of pterosaurs and dinosaurs might have had simple feathers mm. in which case maybe there's a little something in the genetic code that could make feathers so it turns out the fossilized skin of carnotaurus was found with the holotype in the early 1980s although it wasn't recognized with the fossil until a few years later because fossilized skin isn't particularly obvious i think it is literal skin that's fossilized but basically that amounts to like a really thin black coating mm -hmm. <laughs> on rock so it can be hard to tell yeah so effectively it's basically a skin impression whether or not there's skin actually remaining there or not it's the impression of the shape of what it was like when it was alive that's really the important thing and if you're not paying really close attention to the texture of the rock that's around the bone then you can miss it and potentially scrape it away and the authors do say, quote, extensive areas of skin impressions had been preserved over the right side of the skull, but were largely lost during preparation, end quote. No, that's too bad. It is unfortunate, although there are some comments about what the skin looked like, because some of it was still available, at least for a little while, but there aren't any good photos of it. And since then, they can't really find the stuff that's on the head. Mm. But they did go back to the original site a little bit after they discovered that there was skin on the specimen and found more skin. Oh, good. And as a result, they ended up with enough skin to make what the authors call the most accurate dinosaur sculpture ever made at that point, <laughs> which was in the mid-1980s. Nice. It looks really cool. Apparently, the sculpture of this Carnotaurus, you know, it's like a full scale, you know, so it's almost 30 feet long, big, freaky-looking horned... <laughs> theropod with his mouth open it used to be at the los angeles natural history museum i think they're the ones that paid for it and i found a really cool picture of it but i can't find out what happened to it i tried searching around and i haven't been able to nail down where it went i'm guessing maybe it ended up in a traveling exhibit of some sort or at another museum or somewhere for renovations 
Like they're repairing it or updating it? Yeah. Yeah, it could be. It was there until at least 2006, and there's a picture of it from 2006 that still looked really good. So I don't know. I mean, it was indoors, so I think it was still in good shape, but it might have gotten moved out to make way for the T-Rex growth series. I'm not sure when that got installed. I'm trying to figure it out. Apparently, there's a documentary about the creation of the sculpture, too. Cool. As I mentioned on a forum, but I couldn't find out what that was called either. I think <laughs> it was probably like a VHS tape sold in the gift shop or something mm. for a few years in the late 80s or early 90s, but... If any listeners know what it's called, I'd appreciate it if you let me know. So anyway, back to the skin on Carnotaurus. They found samples of the skin from the shoulder, thorax, tail, and maybe the neck. That's a lot of parts. It is, yeah. And they're in better shape, I would say, and a little bit larger of samples than the T-Rex, where it was like when we talked about T-Rex and sort of a similar thing about whether or not it had scales, most of the things were postcard or smaller pieces. These are quite a bit bigger than that, maybe on the scale of up to a foot, I would say, hmm. on one side. They found that there are two types of scales. There are large, meaning 20 to 65 millimeter or three quarter to two and a half inch in diameter, feature scales, they're called. And then there are small, which is basically less than 14 millimeters or under about a half an inch diameter basement scales. They kind of underneath yeah I be, not i don't know i don't know why they're called basement scales it's kind of a weird name they get hidden under the feature <laughs> scales because they're not being featured yeah i think that's it the feature you scales, go to the basement yeah. you scales yeah they're not exciting enough the feature scales are like the big ones that you notice and the basement scales are more or less just the texture of the skin they're not the money beats no they're the non-money beat scales <laughs> <laughs> so the large feature scales, since those are the exciting ones, are conical and they're randomly distributed, meaning they're not in rows. They also don't change in size in like a regular pattern across different parts of the body. So for example, they're not larger near the neck and then taper down as they get near the back or near the tail, which is a way that they're often depicted. And they're, yeah, not in any kind of row. It's just, it almost looks like it's polka dotted, hmm. just sort of random big conical bumps all over it look at me look at me all over the body yeah pretty much but the small basement scales as they're called are low scales which they describe as surrounding the feature scales but i it's basically just like they're everywhere and then there are feature scales in between them they come in a lot of shapes though unlike the feature scales which are conical all over the body the basement scales are circular on the tail then they're in an elongated shape on the thorax, and those are actually the smallest ones on the thorax. The largest ones are hexagonal, and they're on the shoulder, but all of the basement scales vary quite a bit in size and shape, even in that small area that so I described. both sets of scales are just all over the place. Yeah. So the, the basement scales are literally everywhere, and, you know, they're the skin, basically. And then you've got the large feature scales, which sort of stick up from the skin. This Carnotaurus skin is basically the only skin we have of a ceratosaur, excluding footprints. And then we also have some osteoderms from ceratosaurus. But in terms of like a, a real good skin impression from the body of a ceratosaur, this is pretty much it. And that means that it's basically the only window we have into what ceratosaurs looked like in terms of their patterning and maybe some function of their skin. 
Previously, it's been hypothesized that they might have used their feature scales, those big conical ones, for protection, like an ankylosaur kind of thing. Oh, interesting. But the authors rejected that idea and said that basically the scales are too small and not tough enough to really offer any sort of defense. And the fact that they're just randomly distributed to, it doesn't seem like they're trying to protect any specific vulnerable area, just sort of all over the place. So they think it's more likely that they had a display function, possibly even being colored with like a coloration effect. Oh, that could be pretty. Yeah, that, it, I think it really could be. But they did note that a lot of reptiles have these feature scales and they just blend in with the rest of the body. So it's not necessarily anything that important. The most interesting detail is actually about the unevenness of the skin, which doesn't sound exciting, but I'll explain why. So the unevenness of the skin may have created vertical grooves or wrinkles while it was alive. That's the important thing. Okay. (laughs) Give it some texture. Yeah. But really, it's because of this analogy the authors made to the wrinkled skin on African elephants. So elephants use the wrinkles in their skin to increase their surface area, which obviously helps when you're hot. More surface area helps you cool down. And that's a big problem that larger animals can have is they have relatively less surface area per volume so it makes it easier to overheat so having a bunch of extra loose skin apparently helps with that but the other thing is the way they wrinkle it also helps them retain water because they wade into water and then when they get up out of the water that water is still sort of stuck in their folds and essentially it lets them simulate sweating in the heat so that water evaporates in the hot dry savanna and then it cools them down And this is really important because apparently African elephants don't have sweat glands. Oh, I didn't (laughs) realize. I think their their skin is so thick and dense that they can't really have sweat glands going all the way through it. Oh, it gets hot. Yes. So that's how African elephants deal with it. Asian elephants are apparently very similar, but they have less wrinkling. And some people think that's because they don't need as much help cooling down because they're not in an African savanna. They're in a slightly more temperate environment, I guess. Maybe there's more shade available or something. So that degree of wrinkliness might be a factor in seeing how hot their environment was. Similarly, rhinos can't sweat, so they wade into water and do the same sort of strategy where the water works as sweat, or sometimes they roll around in mud or dust in order to cool off. Don't elephants do that too? I think so. I think we saw that at the zoo recently. There's an elephant covered in dust, and then it was off to the side eating a bunch of food. <laughs> this is off topic, but just the way it could move its trunk yeah. and grab at food from a whole bunch of angles. They're very dexterous with their trunks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The reason I bring up rhinos, though, is because, like I was saying, the average weight of a rhino is basically the upper end of what Carnotaurus might have weighed. So if they were in a sort of similar-ish temperature. And if they couldn't sweat. Yeah, exactly. Then they might have used the same sort of strategy. And we don't think Carnotaurus or any other dinosaurs for that matter would have had sweat glands because just by phylogenetic bracketing, you know, we know some of the common ancestors and they can't sweat. So we don't think they could sweat. Unfortunately, though, we don't have any good reptile analogs since they're much smaller. Most reptiles either stay in the water or the shade or gape to cool down. So they basically open their mouth really wide open and then they use their saliva. Oh, that's why they open their mouths. (laughs) That's one of the reasons. (laughs) 
<laughs> and keep it open for so long yeah, sometimes. Yeah. When it's hot, that's one of the reasons they do it. So once again, we're using elephants as our analog with dinosaurs. It's kind of funny to use an elephant as an analog for a Carnotaurus. Mm -hmm. That is not the animal I would expect to compare. <laughs> Usually you think elephant, you think sauropod or maybe ceratopsian or we, something. We did just talk about a T-Rex and a duck, so. That's true. This is more similar, maybe. Well, could go either way because theropods, birds, all that. Anyway. That's true. One interesting thing that they pointed out was basically acknowledging that elephants weigh a lot more than Carnotaurus, or even a rhino for that matter, likely weighs more than Carnotaurus did. But they think Carnotaurus would need to dissipate a lot of heat, even though it's not its body mass that's containing the heat. They think Carnotaurus was going to be more active potentially than something like an elephant or a rhino. Right, because it's a predator. Exactly. So like the herbivores, they can move slowly most of the time and sort of hang out near the water and all that. A Carnotaurus might have to get out and about go run something down and it's going to be creating a lot of heat then. So it sure would be nice to have some water folded up in the flaps <laughs> so that when they get running, they can cool down and not, you know, get exhausted as quickly. Interestingly, though, they never once used the word feather in the paper. Oh. So they didn't say it was featherless. They didn't say anything about... That's for another paper. Yeah. I presume they had some pretty big areas of skin impressions and I think skin itself. And there's doesn't seem to be any sign of feathers. Plus, there's such a distant relative from the dinosaurs that did have more advanced feathers. I think it's a pretty safe bet to say Carnotaurus just was naked. No feathers. Just flashy feature scales. Yep. Unless we find another fossil, it's always possible. Mm -hmm. Maybe it had feathers on its weird little arms or something. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. To hide the fact that the arms were so small. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a Brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. <laughs> Good for us as scientists. <laughs> mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. 
jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio, and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Next, as promised, there's a paper that came out recently that could make us rethink how we think about Allosaurus. Oh, another popular carnivore. Yeah, this is turning into quite the carnivorous episode. So the paper is called Carnosaurs as Apex Scavengers. Apex Scavengers? Yes. Agent-based simulations reveal possible vulture analogs in late Jurassic dinosaurs. Hmm. This was published in Ecological Modeling and written by Cameron Paul and Louis Ruedas. I'm already skeptical. You're not the only one. But I thought it was a really cool breakdown. So they looked at dinosaur ecosystems and then the amount of carry-on that would be in the ecosystem. This is the Morrison formation. And they created these agent-based models, which are their computer models where simulated entities like animals, they interact with each other and then they're programmed with certain behaviors and conditions. And the idea is to test some system-wide patterns and come up with some ideas. Makes sense. So they were testing the idea that Allosaurus in the Morrison formation and maybe other carnosaurs elsewhere, may have been scavengers. Okay, so the idea is that there were a lot of dead sauropods in the Morrison Formation. Hmm. And sauropods are big and meaty. And maybe that even affected carnosaur evolution, because the authors were saying allosaurs have few predatory specializations, like not having that powerful of a bite force or not having great binocular vision. On the other hand, having fewer sauropods around may have led to more predatory adaptations like you see with T-Rex. T-Rex wasn't really eating sauropods. I don't know. Allosaurus had some pretty awesome hands and claws and pretty good teeth, too. They didn't talk about the claws, but okay, we'll just walk you through what they did. The models, they did include conditions to test like seasons predation success you know because you're not always 100 successful when you're hunting and competition among different animals and then how that influenced carnosaur mainly allosaurus survival in places with a lot of carry-on versus places with not that much carry-on mm, i see so maybe in their simulation the allosaurs weren't good enough at hunting so that when there wasn't a lot of carry-on around it was like oh they're going to get hungry. But then when there is a bunch of carry-on, it's like, okay, now they can survive. Yeah, and there was also the idea that when you hunt, that takes so many calories that you need a lot of food to recover those calories. You get a lot of food when you catch a dinosaur. If you're successful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, but you don't have to catch food every day. There's lots of animals. Like, you know, they talk about the success rate of hunters and Usually it's like 30% or something like that. Sometimes it's even less, but all those animals survive. Anyway, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> so they built this model that was based on a NetLogo wolf-sheep predation model. And they had carnosaurs, sauropods, and then carcasses that were basically dead sauropods. Mm -hmm. And then they divided the carnosaurs, which were all based on Allosaurus, into scavengers, predators, and alphas. 
And they did say, you know, you can run more models in the future, add even more data, make it more accurate. There's probably more information around the sauropods, like their population systems and their daily energetic costs. Oh, they did say, uh, before I get too much into their model, there was a previous agent-based simulation that simulated the Serengeti to correlate with the Morris information, but that didn't produce much carry-on. And maybe it wasn't that realistic because when you consider the animals being eaten, the sauropods, they were so big and there's so much meat, the Morrison probably did have more carry-on than that simulation had found. So back to this current one with Allosaurus. The sauropods, in their model, they had them reach a maximum weight of 45,000 kilograms, and that's based on Brachiosaurus estimates. And they said about 30% of the sauropods were adults at any given time. They were also saying sauropod carcasses were probably around for months, maybe even more than six years. That's according to some studies. I didn't oh, realize that they lasted so long. So the simulation modeled how quickly carcasses decayed based on how quickly pig carcasses decay because pig carcasses have been the most studied. So there's the most data on that. And they kind of figured out, okay, this will be how long it takes for the meat to go away. The carnosaurs, as I mentioned, were modeled after Allosaurus. They had estimates that Allosaurus needed to eat about 11 kilograms of meat every day to live or, you know, something comparable every few days, whatever the caloric intake they needed. And then they were able to detect carcasses in the simulation between one to 10 kilometers away. Oh, 10 kilometers. That might be stretching a little. Six miles? They thought that that wasn't stretching it enough. Hmm. I mean, they ran a few different models, so I think they tinkered a little bit. I can't remember exactly what the details were, but they did give odds of successfully killing sauropods for the Carnosaur, the predators, because again, they had the predators, the scavengers, and the alphas. So the predators had, if they encountered a sauropod, a 35% chance of successfully killing it, a 10% chance of being killed by the sauropod, and then a 55% chance of neither things happening. And they're saying, you know, because in modern animals, we see a lot of failed attempts to hunt and kill prey. Mm -hmm. And these Allosaurs also only attacked the sauropods that weighed below 3,000 kilograms. Okay, yeah. I was I was thinking if the model is just, you know, they attack adult sauropods and get killed all the time, no wonder the scavengers did better. Yeah, but, but no, they took that into account. It does seem like the 10% chance of being killed by the sauropod is very high because most animals won't attack things that have that high of a probability of getting killed mm. during the attack. That could be part of the issue. Maybe. So the alphas then were programmed to scare away the scavengers if they're mm. both near a carcass. That makes sense. And then the model included seasonal changes too. So based on these models, Allosaurus, they said, probably could survive by just eating sauropod carcasses. If they did hunt, they'd be at a disadvantage compared to if they were a scavenger because you know, it takes energy to hunt and there's risks too. Like they could get injured or die. And then they said it's possible that Allosaurus was like a vulture. Having all of this, these sauropod carry-on around could be a reason why carnosaurs in the Morris information and other places had some weak senses there. Again, they pointed out the poor binocular vision, weak bite forces, no locomotor specialization because the sauropod carcasses would provide lots of food and they said this is like how beach whales in the Arctic can feed hundreds of polar bears over several months. Interesting. 
The one nice thing about beach whales in the Arctic is that they're cold, so they don't get rotted and disgusting. That's true. They last longer. <laughs> That's what I keep thinking when you're talking about month-old meat, uncooked right. meat in the sun outside. Like, they must have had some really good gut microbiomes to not get... That's true. I don't think they took into consideration the rotting meat aspect, but... Yeah. Because what's the percentage of dying eating six-year-old sauropod meat? (laughs) (laughs) I don't think they actually had in the simulation the carry-on being over six years old. It's just that some studies figured out that carry-on was around for over six years. Yeah. But I mean, even after a month, that's going to be really gross. Yeah. But there's always something that eats it. Yeah, I guess vultures do it and they're okay. If they have really tough stomach acid, maybe, and just like know how to deal with it. I don't know. Not something I'm into. (laughs) So they're saying that maybe Allosaurus evolved to be a better scavenger because its skull was suited to swallowing a lot of food in one gulp. Its neck could apply pulling and ripping forces similar to vultures and other animals that specialize in scavenging. And they were saying Allosaurus had a weak bite force, but it was suited for biting quickly. So it's good for ripping off meat. Allosaurus also didn't have that great of hearing. And Allosaurus and other carnosaurs, they had decorative skull ornamentation. That would have made it harder to be stealthy when they're stalking or ambushing prey. And they mentioned vultures have this too to help identify each other and to intimidate competitors around carcasses. Hmm. Now, that doesn't mean Allosaurus couldn't hunt. They probably could in the right circumstances. But the authors concluded, quote, Allosaurus and relatives have been considered apex predators for more than 100 years, but our model demonstrates that these dinosaurs may have evolved to fill a different niche altogether, end quote. So saying all that, they do know that their model's not complete. There's a lot of unknown data and factors like behaviors, climate, more. And they did say future discoveries and more models will help our understanding. So did you see some people that didn't like this model? Because when I said I'm skeptical, you said I'm not alone. Yeah, I did see some comments online. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. The one piece of evidence that I really like that could factor into this is the Cleveland Lloyd quarry, Mm -hmm. where it's a ton of dead Allosaurus. And a lot of times they say it's a predator trap, but really you could think of it more as a scavenger trap. Yeah. Because if, especially if they're scavenging and more and more are dying, that's going to make more and more of a stink. And then Allosaurus are going to come from far and wide if they're interested in eating the other Allosaurus that they smell. I had the same thought. Yeah. So I think that's maybe a good argument for it. I can see how they're saying it didn't have a strong bite force. But usually when people are talking about bite forces, it's more about the mechanism of hunting. Like they talk about that all the time with some of the South American dinosaurs compared to something like T-Rex, where they're like, well, it just did a, it would do quick bites and then run away and wait for the animal to bleed. Mm -hmm. So Allosaurus, I don't see why that's not an option. And in terms of not being fast, if they're talking about hunting small sauropods, small sauropods probably aren't that fast either. Yeah. Well, so I think the takeaway is they could have hunted if they wanted to, if they needed to, if the opportunity presented itself, but maybe they preferred scavenging and maybe over time they developed in ways that made it easier to scavenge. Yeah. Because they had all these dead sauropods around them. Yeah, maybe. It would be interesting to see how people think the, you know, relatively weak-jawed South American carnivores, 
that were around with also huge numbers of sauropods if they think they were also largely scavengers. But I don't know. We've seen some things where they talk about how really flying seems to be a prerequisite for being a scavenger of land animals because it takes so much energy to go a long distance. Like you were saying, if they smell something 10 kilometers away, walking 10 kilometers when you weigh a ton or two <laughs> takes a lot of energy too. Maybe more energy than a couple failed hunts would take. Mm. So They did talk about that and how birds can also get to the meat quicker. Oh yeah. So I don't know. It's interesting. Yeah, just another way of thinking about a well-known dinosaur. <laughs> yeah. I, I think I still, on average, would think of a allosaur, like how a lot of theropods, we say like nothing passes up an easy meal. Mm -hmm. I would think of it as like a scavenger first in that everything is a scavenger first. If there's mm -hmm. an easy meal just laying there, mm -hmm. everything's going to scavenge before anything else. And then a hunter second. But then maybe allosaurus, like you said, had more opportunities to be a scavenger first. Yeah. And then so maybe over time that meant that it evolved a better sense of smell and didn't need the eyesight and the hearing and need, didn't need to run as fast in general because it had enough meat available. I guess it's possible. Mm -hmm. I'd like to see how the paper gets received and what we're thinking like a year from now about this. Or future models, what they mm -hmm. look like too. Yeah. It's so hard to model the, the number of an animal in an ecosystem oh, too. Yeah. That's what I was thinking. Like, yeah, there's, okay, even if 30% of the sauropods are adults and, you know, they hunt the ones that are under 3,000 kilograms, there could be like 10 baby oh, yeah. sauropods around or there could be like 10,000. <laughs> right. It reminds me of that study that estimated there were, what, a couple billion T-Rex that lived. In total, yeah. In total, but the numbers varied so much based on the variables they put in. Yeah, so it was like at any time in North America, there were between, I, I can't remember the exact numbers, but it was something like 10,000 to like 1.5 million T-Rex. They're like somewhere in there. And it's like, well, that makes a big difference on the ecosystem when you have 100 times more of an apex predator. Yeah. So yeah, it, it is hard to get, I mean, you, at some point, you just got to put in your best estimate and then see what happens. Yeah. But I suppose the benefit with modeling is you could assume that the ecosystem would naturally find that balance. Like the wolf sheep is a common one. They also talk about bunnies and foxes, I think, is another common mm. thing. And it's like when the bunny population goes up, the foxes go up too. Mm -hmm. And then when the, the bunnies start to die, the foxes die. And so they sort of find an equilibrium. So if you have a good enough model and you know all the animals that are in it, and you can know a little bit about their behavior, it might be able to sort of guess at how many of each you would have. Yeah. But I think it's fun to do these kind of simulation exercises and just see what happens. For sure. At the very least, it gets other people talking about it. Mm -hmm. Moving on into other dinosaur news. In Alberta, Canada, the McHugh family from Panoka donated a triceratops horn to the Royal Tyrrell Museum. And Gary McHugh has been hunting for dinosaur fossils for almost 60 years in Alberta. That's a long time. That's amazing. He said he decided he didn't like hunting when he was young. So he hunted for fossils instead. <laughs> <laughs> now he's 75 and he's looking to kind of move on and donate his collection. So one of the fossils is a Triceratops horn. It was found along the Red Deer River Valley. It's Triceratops prorsus. And there's enough of the nasal corn that you can figure out the species. Yeah. <laughs> Not just the genus. Yeah, because it's sort of based on like the curvature and like the size of the horns, the difference between prorsus and hortus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The interesting thing is this fossil was found before 1978 
1978 is when the Historical Resources Act came into effect and that protected fossils in Alberta. But since it was found before then, they were able to keep it in their private collection. So now it may end up on display. That's what I'm always secretly hoping when I find out about these amazing fossils that get sold into a private collector is that, you know, when they finally are done appreciating it and ready to move on, that they'll donate it to a museum Mm -hmm. and then everybody can enjoy it. Yeah. Because in the grand scheme of time, spending a couple months or a couple years in somebody's collection doesn't make much of a difference. (laughs) Not if you're thinking in dinosaur time, no. Nope. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) In dinosaur time, those pieces spent more time in the ground than anywhere else. Yep. (laughs) By a very wide margin. Mm Mm-hmm. In Atlantic City in New Jersey in the U.S., the Atlantic City Convention Center is going to have Dino Stroll October 23rd and 24th. You can go there and see 75 animatronic dinosaurs. That's a lot. That's a lot, yeah. Some of the pictures I saw, they have T-Rex and then a bunch of sauropods in the background, but I couldn't see too many other types or, you know, close up enough to know what they were. Some of them are probably kind of small, and then it gets that number up. Oh, could be. So tickets are on sale now. When you go, you do have to wear masks. They're also taking canned or non-perishable food items as donations for the initiative Stomp Out Hunger. So that's pretty cool, combining the two things. Next, Phil Tippett, who we interviewed him back in episode 283 about his work with dinosaurs and Jurassic Park. He's selling a segment of his 1984 short film Dinosaur as an NFT, non-fungible token. Those are pretty cool. Yeah. So they digitize the segment. It's one minute and nine seconds long from the film, and it's the part where Deinonychus rips apart a Struthiomimus. Pretty exciting clip. I wonder how much that'll go for. I've seen really not exciting NFTs sell for tens of thousands of dollars or even like hundreds of thousands of dollars. Yeah. This is actually a really awesome thing. I'm sure it's out of our price range. Yeah. <laughs> And then last, there's going to be a VR Jurassic Snap game. If that sounds familiar, it's because there's a Pokemon Snap game, and you take pictures of the animals, and I guess you can throw food at them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so this one's going to be, instead of Pokemon, it's dinosaurs. It's made by Dream IRL. They're currently raising money, and the plans are to launch on Quest, PC, VR, and Sony's upcoming PS5 VR headset. Oh, I didn't know PS5 was going to get a new VR headset because they have the PS4 one. Mm -hmm. And I saw there's like an adapter to get the PS4 VR to work on PS5. And I was thinking, oh, no, it's like Microsoft Connect where that one died. And then they were like, oh, but if you still really want it on the new system, you can get this adapter. But that's good to hear. Yeah, I could see it being a fun game in VR because you got to move around a little bit when you stop and take a picture. Mm -hmm. There's a little bit of movement, I guess, when you're throwing the food. Yeah, Pokemon Snap. I think there's a new version of that that came out on Switch or something. Mm -hmm. And people love that game. Mm -hmm. It's not even in VR. So just imagine how popular it'll be. Yeah. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. 
And now on to our dinosaur of the day, Alwakiria, which was a request from Crow via our Patreon and Discord. So thanks. Alwakiria was a basal sauriscian that lived in the late Triassic and what is now India. was found in the Maleri Formation. It's bipedal and small. It had an elongated head, long arms, and a long tail. In 2010, Gregory Paul estimated Alwakiria to be about 5 feet, or 1.5 meters long, and weigh... 4.4 pounds or 2 kilograms. A skinny guy. Yeah. It was probably an omnivore based on the teeth, and Alwakiria may have eaten plants, insects, and small vertebrates. It had heterodont, or different shaped teeth, in the upper jaw. The front teeth were straight and slender, like Eoraptor. The teeth in the sides of the jaw were like carnivorous theropods, curved backwards, but they were not serrated. So again, the teeth are similar to Eoraptor, both had these gaps between the teeth in the premaxillary and maxillary bones in the upper jaw. The type species is Alwakiria malariensis. It was originally named in 1987 by Chatterjee as Wakiria malariensis in honor of paleontologist Alec Walker, but it turned out that name was used for a bryozoa, also known as a moss animal. They live in shallow water in colonies. So then in 1994, Chatterjee and Chrysler renamed the dinosaur Alwakiria malariensis. So they just threw his first name, Al, in the mix. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Changed it enough. The genus name means for Alec Walker, and the species name refers to the formation where it was found. The holotype, it's incomplete. It includes parts of the jaws, incomplete vertebrae, most of a femur, and an ankle bone, also known as an astragalus. The description called it a, quote, imperfectly known fragmentary material. <laughs> <laughs> imperfectly known is a very generous way to describe that. Yep. The partial skull is about 1.5 inches or 4 centimeters long. That is tiny. Mm -hmm. is, again, imperfectly known. Yes. In 2005, Raoult and Remes said Awakiria was a chimera, with parts of the skull being... A cruotarsin, archosauriform. In other words, not a dinosaur. Right, and the vertebrae being from other reptiles, but that the femur and the ankle bone were from a dinosaur, and the ankle bone specifically had sauriscian features. But maybe not enough features to identify it as its own genus or species, would be my guess. Well, the name is, still stands. Oh, okay. Yeah. So now it's just an ankle bone and a femur? I think so, or maybe it's a case of depending who you talk to. So originally, Alwakiria was thought to be a basal theropod similar to Coelophysis and Procompsognathus. Then later was thought to be a Herrerasaurid, and then most recently, a basal Sauriscian. The fossils were found in red mudstone, and it's one of the earliest known dinosaurs from India. Oh, cool. And now onto our fun fact. I've really taken over this episode. You really did. I don't know how I feel about it. I could not resist this one. <laughs> Yeah. And I want to thank a listener on Twitter for this gem. It's also really good timing to a response to one of our listener questions, which is, what did sauropods have against turtles? Well, I'll tell you, they had good reason to be skeptical or mistrusting of turtles. And murdering of turtles? Yep. No, not murdering. Defending against turtles. That's By, by squishing them and killing them and eating them? On accident. Defending on accident? <laughs> you know what? Don't worry about the details. <laughs> so there's a paper that came out in Current Biology called Giant Tortoises Hunt and Consume Birds by Anna Zora and Justin Gerlach. 
<laughs> and the takeaway I have from this is that you can't trust turtles slash tortoises. And maybe the ancestors to birds, the dinosaurs, knew that. <laughs> maybe. I mean, I could see a large tortoise going after a sauropod baby. Could happen. Mm-hmm. I could see it. So what is this? This is a tortoise eating a bird? Oh, yes. There's video footage of a tortoise eating a chick. There you go. Baby bird. Oh, it's a chick. Okay. Mm-hmm. So mostly we think of tortoises as herbivorous. And in general, I guess people tend to think that they behave simply because they move slowly. But in this video, which is what this paper is all about... <laughs> There's the giant tortoise attacking a turn chick, it's a seabird, chasing after it, and then killing the bird and eating it. So it just it just swallows it, basically? Well, in the video, you see this bird on a log, and the tortoise is on the log, and the tortoise stretches its neck out and tries to chomp the bird. Mm -hmm. The bird hops away and tries to defend itself. But as it hops away, it's on the still on the log. The tortoise follows it on the log, and it keeps trying to bite the chick. Mm -hmm. So the chick tries to peck at the tortoise in defense. It flutters its wings, but the tortoise doesn't give up. Then the chick gets to the end of the log, and the tortoise clamps its jaws around the chick's head. Mm. Now the chick is dead, falls to the ground. The tortoise gets off the log, and yeah, it did swallow the chick whole. This whole thing took about seven minutes. It always takes so much longer than you expect. I was thinking that didn't take long at all. And I was wondering, why did the bird not get off the log? And apparently it's because, so turn colonies, they nest in trees. Mm -hmm. They happen to be around this giant tortoise population. And maybe the bird fell from its nest. Mm. And it probably was trying to stay above ground level because it's not able to fly yet. So it didn't try to fly away the higher it can be the safer it is yeah unless there's a tortoise on that log with you yeah can't trust those tortoises <laughs> so this happened in the seychelles oh the seychelles mm-hmm yeah the authors noted that the tortoise had its jaws open and its tongue pulled back which is what they do when they're being aggressive it's not really their feeding behavior hmm. when they're feeding the tongue is protracted not retracted gotcha so that it was more of like, it started out as more of a fight and then turned into an eating thing later. So they think that the fact that the tortoise went after this bird on the log could mean it had experience getting birds in similar situations. Oh, interesting. So it's a serial murderer. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think eating another animal qualifies as a murderer. But it doesn't need to eat that animal. Well, maybe it did. Maybe. You know what? I don't want to defend the tortoise. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of humans eat birds, too, and you're we're not right, murderers. You're right. You're right. Although okay. I guess some people probably consider that murder. So tortoises have been known to eat bones and snail shells for calcium and scavenge when there's an opportunity, because who doesn't? Yeah, and sea turtles are basically carnivorous, some species of them. They yeah. eat like nothing well, but... We're talking about land turtles. Tortoises. <laughs> yeah. There hadn't been any record of tortoises actively preying on animals in the wild before this. Though apparently they have squashed birds under their carapace. And there are anecdotes of turtles squashing crabs. Why? Because they're hungry. 
The same reason that sauropods stepped on them and ate them. No. Because they're easy meals. I don't think that's what happened. It's just like the Allosaurus. It takes a lot of energy to go out and find (laughs) food. So if there's food right next to you, you squish it and you eat it. Hmm. Whether you're a tortoise with a little baby dinosaur or you're a big dinosaur with a little baby tortoise. Anyway, I think this proves that sauropods were right to be weary of tortoises. (laughs) And uh, they did everything right. Oh, I see. (laughs) The moral of Sabrina's story is sauropods did everything right. Sauropods for the win, yeah. Okay. That's the takeaway. That's why I had to take over the fun fact today. I see. (laughs) To let you know. (laughs) Thank you. I feel enlightened. (laughs) And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Oh, weird. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to join our stellar community of dinosaur enthusiasts, head over to patreon.com slash inodino that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash i-k-n-o-w-d-i-n-o such enthusiasm yep thanks for listening and until next time you swooped me (laughs) somebody had to say it